Well, as many of you noticed last time, we began in chapter 4, and chapter 4 marks a shift for Paul, where he goes from lots of doctrine in the book to now he's moving to cover practical matters of the Christian life. And last week we looked at sexual purity, and this week we're looking at brotherly love. In fact, we notice again in verses 9 and 10, he says this, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Now, um, this idea of brotherly love is, is kind of an interesting idea. Um, and when we think about brotherly love in the ancient world, particularly Greeks, they thought about it a little bit differently than we often do. In fact, for many of you who might, might have siblings that you don't get along with, uh, it was considered that the people in the world that you got along best with were your own family members, your brothers, your sisters. In fact, um, here's what Plutarch, who was, whose life overlapped with Paul, this is how he described this kind of brotherly love. He said, most friendships are in reality shadows and imitations and images of that first friendship which nature implanted in children toward parents and in brothers toward brothers. So this is the kind of love that Paul is talking about. And it's interesting that Paul is now dealing with a church. And a church, as you know, is full of people who are unrelated. Yet when Paul sees their interaction with each other within the body of Christ, he looks at them as having this kind of brotherly love. Very often we hear people talk about how there are different kinds of love, uh, different levels of love. We'll hear that there's agape love, there's phileo love. Uh, agape or agape love is the highest form, people will say. And phileo is kind of like the next level, and eros, which is another form of love. But in reality, the biblical authors use these words mostly interchangeably. And in fact, Paul even does in this text in front of us. We notice that he speaks about brotherly love there at the beginning of verse 9. But later on, he talks about agape love, a love uh, uh, been taught by God to love one another. He uses these terms interchangeably. And, and, and I think what we should take from that is not to say that there are different gradations of love, but that that we should, we should love each other with the, with the highest form of love, and that's reflected in our love for one another. Our, our, uh, our, we, we, are, we are part of a, a family. Uh, uh, even though we're not necessarily all physically related, we're spiritually related, and so Paul notices this in their lives. Now, there's a very interesting phrase that he uses in verse 9. It is the phrase taught by God. That's actually one word. He says you're taught by God to love one another, and what's interesting about this word is that, that it is the only time it is used in the New Testament. That's one interesting part of it. And there are lots of words that we come across that are used only one time in the New Testament. But we're okay because we can look at other references in the Greek world and then we can kind of hone in on the meaning of this word. But this word is different. In fact, there's not only no use of this word in the entire New Testament besides this one. But in all of the Greek literature, all of the vast Greek literature that we have, this word is never used one time ever. It's actually this phrase taught by God, the word behind it, is a word that Paul made up. He coined. And why would he do that? Well, Paul was making a theological point with it. 
In fact, um, uh, he, is, he is quoting from Isaiah 54.13. Isaiah 54.13 says this. It says, All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. So the idea is, is that when the Messiah comes and the Messiah sets up his kingdom, God will teach us. God will be our teacher. In fact, the Bible looks forward to a day when we won't have a need for human teachers. So I'm going to be out of a job. Um, look at Jeremiah chapter 31. This is, this is life under the new covenant. For this is the covenant. Now, now you have to remember, this is, this is written you know, five, 500 uh, years before Jesus came, roughly. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother say, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So uh, the beauty is, is that God promises a day when God will be our teacher. He will put his law into our hearts and we will obey him and and this is the promise given in jeremiah and we know that this this came to fruition through the new covenant through what jesus gave but obviously we still have teachers and obviously we still carry around bibles and so paul is saying here that that uh, they are taught by god now why is this a significant statement well you have to remember this church paul went to this church he preached the gospel there. People came to know Christ. All kinds of problems arose in the city. Paul and Silas got pushed out of the city. And as a result of this, they were left as a young church without any mature teachers and mature spiritual leaders. Yet, they showed this extraordinary love to other believers throughout the, pro- the, the, the province of Macedonia in which they lived. They put God's love on display, and Paul is trying to explain how in the world could these people act like such mature Christians when they didn't have any of the necessary ingredients that would make someone into a, 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 a mature Christian. Well, in verse 8, we saw the reason why this was possible, why this happened. It was because God gave them his Holy Spirit. And when we come to Christ and we believe on him, God gives us his Holy Spirit and his Holy Spirit convicts us with sin, of sin. And there's all kinds of fruit of the Spirit that comes, comes out of us as a result, like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. All of these things come out of us as a result of having the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. And this is what happened in their lives. So he is explaining to them what is happening. And uh, what we see is a kind of partial fulfillment of Isaiah 54 that he quoted. A partial fulfillment of Jeremiah 31. That, that this, this gift that God has given, this day when we will no longer need teachers, because God is our teacher, that has already begun because God places his Holy Spirit within us and he teaches us. Isn't that a great thing to know? The reason why they were able to love this way was because God was at work in them and the same God who is at work in them is in work in us and so he is teaching us and leading us as we walk with him and he is convicting us through the course of our life. Jesus quotes the same passage, the Isaiah 54, 13, in John six forty four and 45. He says this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. 
It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And so even now, we have experienced this in part. And what a day that will be when we experience that in full, in the presence of God, in his glorious kingdom, when we shall see him. And he shall be our true teacher. Well, Paul then moves on to some practical applications of all of these things, this kind of love that he speaks about in verses 10 through 12. And so the question for us is, how can we make a positive impact in a fallen world? How can we make a positive impact for Christ in a fallen world? We all live in it. We all experience it. We all see it around us. And Paul gives us some specific instructions to help us with that. He says in the second part of verse 10, but we urge you brothers to do this more and more. That is love each other. And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. How different is that from what we hear in the world? We live in a world that wants to create dependency. It's very interesting that Paul wants to free us from that. The gospel frees us from these things. So scholars debate the... um, the background of what prompted Paul's comments. There's one scholar, uh, I believe it was Hendrickson, who said that, um, he said after, after thinking about Paul's practical advice here, said that, that every church is full of at least three groups. That is um, fanatics, busybodies, and loafers. Now, I, 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 don't, I, I have a much higher view of, the, of Christian people, I think, than that. But... But, but the reality is, is that, that we all struggle with these things because it's part of our fallen nature. We've, we battle. We battle these things in our own life. And, and one view says that there was great messianic fervor at the time. There, there were people who were convinced, and you can see Paul talks, revisits this subject over and over again, the return of the Lord. He keeps coming back to it throughout his letters. And he's going to come back to it again. And that there was a messianic fervor that was, that was at such a pitch that people decided, well, if Jesus is coming back soon, why go to work? Right? Does that make sense? I mean, if you knew, if you knew that at 3 o'clock this afternoon, Jesus um, was coming back, how many of you would check into the office? I, I don't think that that would be on any of our minds. Well, they were convinced that Jesus was coming back soon, so they thought to themselves, well, um, let's, um, let's, let's, let's just stop working and focusing on other things. Well, you know what happens when we stop being productive. We can start becoming busybodies. And so that's what some people think happened. They stopped working, then they became busybodies and started getting involved in other people's stuff in their lives. And, um, and, then, and then finally, it was, it, they, they became more and more fanatical about the situation, about their beliefs. And so that's, that's one idea of what's going on behind the text. We don't know for sure what prompted Paul's words, but it's good to have some kind of baseline of understanding. There's a second view. It is, it is the view that I, th- I think is more plausible. The first view is the popular view. That's the one you will see probably most everywhere. But there's another view that's really rooted in the, rooted in the culture. And, and this society, Roman society, was an honor-based culture. It was an honor-based society. And so you had very, very wealthy people in the society, and what they wanted more than anything was honor. That's what they valued. That's what they prized. That's what they thought was important. 
So what these wealthy people would do is they would actually hire poor citizens to give them the honor that they needed. They did a few things. Number one, um, they, would, they would either pay them in food or, or, or actually in bad food often. <laughs> pay them in bad food or they would pay them money. But, but some of the things that the patrons, the wealthy people do with the clients who are the poor citizens is they would, they would have the clients every morning come and visit them at their home and greet them in the morning. And the more people who greeted you at your home in the morning meant that you had more status. Um, and more importantly, what they would do is they would, uh, they would propose bills in the, in the assembly, in the town assembly. And if, if they were on the payroll, like um, I think, I think um, campaign finance works a little different now, right? You can't pay people to vote for you. I don't, at least I don't think so. We, maybe, maybe, maybe indirectly. Okay. I don't, I don't know the law that well. All right. So, but the way it worked is actually people would be on their payroll. And then when they would go to the assembly and they would present a, a law, all those people on the payroll would have to go ahead and vote with them on it. Now, this, this is obviously a problem if they're Christians, isn't it? Because they might find themselves entangled in a relationship where they're voting for things that actually hurt the Christian community because they're obligated because they're on the, on the payroll of this patron. I think that's what's happening in the passage. I think Paul is wanting Christians to be independent of all of those things so that we can have lives, minds, hearts fixed on Christ, on following him no matter where he calls us to go, not to be compromised by, by these entanglements of the world. But whichever view we take, whichever view we take, the applications of this are the same. The applications of this are the same. So... Um, one of the best things, one of the things that gets the most attention for us are contrasts. Contrasts. So what are some colors that, that present great contrast? Two colors that they put together to make contrast. Anybody uh, think of? Okay, I heard black and white. Red and green. I've heard yellow and green. Blue and gray. Purple and orange. Yes, we, we, how about blue and orange? Uh, these, are, these are colors that make contrast, and, and people that are, by the, by the way, I, I remember learning about some of these things in our class, and it was, it was one of, it was one of the, my least favorite classes, um, along with math and science and um, grammar, but, but recess and gym, um, those are great, so, but but, but we love contrast. Or you say you go out into the, you, you go out for a drive at, at night and maybe get away from the city and away from the lights and you, you're, you're looking up and you see, the, you see maybe a full moon and you see stars against the, the black darkness of space. And isn't it a beautiful thing? That can just capture your attention, your mind, the beauty of that contrast. Or maybe contrast of, of when you're, um, of, 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 of when you used to visit grandma at her house. Remember when you visited Grandma at her house? Her house was so big. The steps were so steep. And, um, and, and then all of a sudden, you go back there as an adult, and you go back to Grandma's house, and the house is so small, and the, and the, and the steps are so easy to climb. These are these, these kinds of contrasts that we have after a long time, and they capture our attention. They capture our mind. Well, the Apostle Paul gives us some contrasts that that we can give evidence to in our own lives that makes Jesus look beautiful. 
we actually, our lives can point to Jesus and make him look beautiful. A life of love gives us the opportunity to show off the beauty of Christ in a fallen world. Well, here's, we, have, we have three contrasts. Number one, number one, he says, well, I'll tell you, I'm summarizing what I think he's saying. Seek peace, not trouble. Seek peace, not trouble. He says in verse 11 that we are to aspire to live quietly. Now, we talked, we talked um, about these, these practical matters last week, and we are, we are uh, revisiting them here. We have this aspire to live quietly. Now, this is, a, this is an oxymoron. Um, J.B. Phillips he translates these verses this way. He says, make it your ambition to have no ambition. <laughs> That's how he translates it. Make it your ambition to have no ambition. Now, that's, that's probably not helping us understand that any better, is it? <laughs> so we need to remember that as Christians, we are under a microscope. The moment that you tell someone that you're a follower of Jesus... And this is really somebody who knows Jesus or doesn't know Jesus. They're, they're going to have their eyes trained on your life. They're going to want to know whether or not your life matches what you believe. And so Paul wants us to keep that in mind as we go through life. He says to aspire to live quietly. This word here for quietly was used um, for the word noble by Philo, who is an ancient Jewish historian. Philo uses this word quietly in contrast to the evil person. So the, the, the quiet life is the opposite of an evil life. And this is how he describes an evil life. This is what Philo says. He says, besides the worthless man whose life is one long restlessness of haunts, marketplaces, theaters, law courts, council halls, assemblies, and every group and gathering of men, his tongue he lets loose for unmeasured, endless, indiscriminate talk, bringing chaos and confusion into everything, mixing true with false, fit with unfit, public with private, holy with profane, sensible with absurd, because he has not been trained to that silence which, is, which in season is most excellent. So everything that Philo says about the evil man is the opposite of what Paul is saying about the quiet life or the noble life or the quiet person. So what Paul is not getting at is he is not saying that we shouldn't talk. A lot of people might read this and say, oh, I better not talk to anyone or anything. Uh, the, the reality is, is that, uh, that, that the words that come out of our mouth are a reflection of what is going on inside of us. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so it's not that we shouldn't speak, and it isn't that we shouldn't speak loudly at certain times, but we must be very careful in the way that we speak. Paul gives us a better perspective on what he means here in another place in Colossians. He says, he says um, Colossians 4, 5, and 6, he said, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious. See that? Now, how in the world can our speech always be gracious? God has to do something in us first for that to happen. Wouldn't you agree with that? James says, no man can tame the tongue. Only God can do that. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. You know that Christians are called to be the salt 
of the earth, the light of the world. Salt is a preservative, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Boy, if there's a, if there's a verse to memorize, it's that one. How often do we need to remind ourselves of these things? We're to seek peace, not trouble. This reminds me of something that was very helpful for me when I was a teenager. Went to a high school in Chicago, and the high school actually had a motto. And the motto was something that was ingrained in our head, and we heard it all the time, and I heard it like it was on a tape recorder in my brain constantly. And it was this. Whatever you do and wherever you go, remember the honor of Lane. Whatever you do and wherever you go, remember the honor of Lane. And I remember hearing that all the time at school, and that affected me. When I, when I went somewhere, I knew I represented my high school. And then all of a sudden, one day it dawned on me. Why don't we substitute the word? Whatever you do, wherever you go, remember the honor of Jesus Christ. Imagine just for a moment if we, if we went through life thinking that way. In every interaction, could be with someone at the store, could be with someone at work, it could be in our own home. That we, we realize that, that, that really our lives tell a story about our relationship with Christ. Wherever you, whatever you do, wherever you go, remember the honor of Jesus Christ. Number two, seek to build up, not tear down. Seek to build up, not tear down. Now, some of you remember that that uh, my childhood, I grew up in North Carolina. And I think that that's where my thought patterns, interacting with people, that's where it, it, it developed. Moved from there when I was 14, but I think it was in there. I remember moving to Chicago and thinking, these people are so harsh. <laughs> because because in, the, in the culture that I lived in, let's say somebody, let's say you're wearing a shirt, or, or somebody's wearing a shirt that, that you don't like. And they say, what do you think of my shirt? Well, what we, were, what we would say is, is, I like the one you wore yesterday better. Now, for us as Southerners, that meant, I don't like the shirt. But I, but I don't want to be harsh. And so Southerners are taught to read into things. They're taught to analyze things. Well, if, that, if that's what they, if they said they liked the one yesterday better, well, then that's obvious that they don't like this one. I mean, for a Southerner, that makes sense. Um, but it's not, it doesn't make a lot of sense for, for most Northerners. I know New Englanders, what do New Englanders do? We, wanna, we want to, um, we, we just like to say it how it is, right? How many times have you met a New Englander who just says, I just say things the way they are? I call them as I see them, right? And, and New Englanders, we often take pride in that. But it makes it hard when somebody thinks in a certain way, is married to a New Englander, if they think differently, right? So, Faith, Faith said to me uh, once, she said, so um, how do you like the shirt? And I said to her, Faith, I like the one you wore yesterday better. <laughs> She's like, oh, thanks. <laughs> and I'm like, that is not what I meant. <laughs> but you know, it's, it's, it's a always, and this is one thing she has taught me that I really appreciate. She has taught me, don't read into things. 
don't read into things. Don't overanalyze things because you have to understand where you're living. You have to understand the way that, that, that we communicate. And so you got to take things as they are. And that is some of the best advice I've ever received in my life. And this is, this is the kind of advice that, that we find here in this text. We find here in this text. Um, we, must, we must always assume the best of others. We must always assume the best of others. This will save us a lot of time. This will save us a lot of time. We need to seek to build up, not to tear it down. He says, mind your own affairs. World War I started when uh, the Archduke Ferdinand, he was, he was uh, assassinated by a Bosnian Serb. So this Bosnian Serb assassinated this Austrian Archduke and... This became a problem because the Austrians assumed that the Serbians were behind it. So they decided to attack the Serbians. But the Serbians had an alliance with Russia. Well, of course, Russia had to get involved in this fight. But the Germans had an alliance with the Austrians. So they get involved. But France is an ally with Russia. So Germany decides to invade France. But on their way to invade France, they go through Belgium, which is a neutral country, who Great Britain has pledged to defend and protect, which then leads to eventually the United States getting into the war, the Ottoman Turks getting involved in the war, and even Japan getting involved in this war. Because... Because an archduke was killed by a a Bosnian Serb. Oh, it's such a dangerous thing to allow ourselves to get entangled in all kinds of issues that that don't necessarily involve us. And that's what Paul is is looking at very closely here. He He says, mind your own affairs. Only danger can come when alliances are formed and we, we build up teams and, and we say this is my group and that's their group and we have cliques. One of the beautiful things about God's design for the church is that there are no cliques. There should be no cliques. There, there, there ought to never be cliques because we ought to love each other like siblings. Brotherly love. This is the picture that, that we get that's presented to us of the, of the life in Christ that we have as in relationship to him. Well, um, we notice that this was a, this was a problem. Busybodiness was an issue in this city. In fact, in 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 10 through 12, we read this. It says, if anyone, this is, a, this is in the second letter that Paul writes, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. We need to seek to build up, not to tear down. You know, sometimes we can, we can use the influence that we have in, in very powerful ways. When I think about the four, when I would say the four men that have influenced me, I think of my dad, who I'm glad you're here visiting with us, dad. Grateful for that. I think about uh, a man named Lou Matson, 
Lou Matson, I knew in Chicago. He was one of my best friends. I was about 25. He was about 95. Great Christian man, electrician. I think about Pastor Ken Nanfelt. I know that he had a big influence on all of us. And then there was another man named Dr. Richard Schilke. Dr. Richard Schilke was the head of missions in, in the denomination that I used to be part of. But he was retired when I knew him. Again, he was in his 90s. I was in my 20s. And he kind of took me under his wing, and he loved me, and he cared for me. But I remember him once telling the story of a denominational meeting. And at these denominational meetings, you get six, seven, eight thousand people there and gather together, and, and uh, people would make motions from the floor. And on one of these occasions, Dr. Schilke saw the vote going in the wrong direction. And it looked like the whole, it looked like the whole convention was going to move and vote on a certain issue a certain way. And then Dr. Schilke got up, and he spoke, and he argued for the other side. And then when it was time to take the vote, the whole convention was swayed, and everyone voted in the direction that Dr. Schilke wanted them to vote. And then the moderator said from the floor, he said, I guess when Dr. Schilke speaks, we all listen. Now, a lot of people, when they hear that, they would be very, they would feel very important, wouldn't they? Maybe they would feel like they have a lot of newfound power. But you know what Dr. Schulke said? He said that if this is what happens when Dr. Schulke speaks, Dr. Schulke, he spoke, he spoke about himself in the third person, by the way. <laughs> he said, if this is what happens when Dr. Schulke speaks, Dr. Schilke will speak no more. Because, because he understood that it wasn't because of the power of his influence that he wanted, he wanted to see that vote turned. It was because it was the right thing to do. And he understood that he had so many people who were with him in that conference that would do whatever he wanted to do that he would speak no more. He laid that down for the benefit of others and for the conference. He was one who sought to build up, not tear down, sought to use his influence for good, not to harm. And then finally, number three, third, third contrast we have is we are to seek to give, not to take. We are to seek to give, not to take. He says, work with your hands. Now, we're all in need at times, and that's one of the beautiful things about the body of Christ. We seek to give, and Jesus commands us to give to the needy. These things are all true. These things are all important. But here he's speaking about the attitude of Christians. We, we are to seek to give, to add to other people's life, to be a blessing to other people in their lives. What a contrast this is with the world. One of the interesting things as we read this, as Paul says this, work with your hands. These were like terrible words for, for Greeks. Greeks hated manual labor. They despised it. Uh, they believed that that was the work of slaves and artisans. And, um, and this, is, this is one ancient quote. This is, this is what somebody wrote about this. While we delight in the work, we despise the workmen. As, for instance, in the case of perfumes and dyes, we take a delight in them, but dyers and perfumers we regard as illiberal and vulgar folk. Think about that. Think about how the gospel has redeem work. This, this call of the Apostle Paul, he pointed out to them that as he was among them, he worked with his own hands. 
This, this, is, this, is, uh, this is the calling of the Christian. And because of this, God is calling us to be people who contribute to the needs of others. How we can, how we can make Christ look beautiful in this fallen world when we, when we find ways to, to give to those who are in need, to give to those who don't have, why be out of the abundance of what we have? That we're not a people who are always looking to take, but we're people who are looking to give, whatever it might be. Sometimes it might be financially, sometimes it might be with our efforts, sometimes it might be with, with uh, perhaps uh, 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 acts of service for other people. Whatever it is, we seek to give to them. This is the mark of a, of a Christian. In fact, the way we do our work matters to God. It says in Colossians 3, 23 and 24, it says, whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men. So when we go to work, maybe we get frustrated. Maybe we have a boss at work who uh, we feel like we're just making that boss rich and we're getting poorer as the day goes by and we're just frustrated with our boss, frustrated with our situation, wish that we had so much more, feel like we're ta- being taken advantage of. The reality is, is that when we work, we're not working for men, we're working for the Lord. And so as a result of it, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Wow, what a powerful picture of the Christian life. If we live that way, we do our work as unto the Lord. Work is just built into the fabric of how God made us. Remember, when God put Adam in the garden before Adam fell, what did, what did he give him? He gave him jobs to do. He gave him work to do. Jesus, before he started his formal ministry <clears throat> for 30 years, Jesus was a carpenter. And Jesus did hard work. The, the carpenters... In that day, particularly living in the region that he lived in, were more likely either stonemasons or furniture makers. More than likely, that's what Jesus did, or maybe he did both. Does that give you a different image of Jesus to think of him maybe as a stonemason? I mean, look at the way he's usually depicted, and not in the Passion of the Christ, but in most of the time when he's depicted, he is not depicted like a stonemason. He's usually depicted as somebody who's emaciated. But, but Jesus would have, would have been physically strong from a lifetime of work. And when he, he, he then, he laid that aside in those final years, those three years of ministry, when he went and preached and he ministered. But we notice here that work, our work matters to God. And God calls us to be people who are productive, called to be productive so that we are blessing to other people. And by that, we put Christ on display before a world that looks for every excuse he can to get out of doing what well, what people are responsible to do. And so um, we have this, this beautiful picture. And why? Why is this so? What is, the, what is the purpose of all of this? Notice in verse 12. So that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. You see those two things? Every eye is on us when we're a follower of Jesus. Whatever we do, wherever we go, we need to remember the honor of Jesus Christ. And God calls us to be dependent on no one. Why? So that, so that our testimony won't be compromised by all of the alliances that we can form in order to protect the kind of lifestyle that God doesn't even want us to live anyway. Maybe when you hear these things and you think about your life and Maybe it's hard to assume the best about other people. or Maybe it's your natural 
preset in your mind to go and just think about the worst thing about another person. Maybe when, when somebody leaves your presence, the, the first thing that comes out of your, your heart are, are maybe those things about them that you don't like, or maybe, maybe you feel like that, those people slighted you. And when you, when you look at your life and you see these things, you say, how, how, can, how can this change about me? I want you to know that whatever is impossible with man, it's not impossible with God. God can change us. He can make us new people from the inside out. He can change the the natural disposition of our mind where we can go from assuming the worst about people to to actually loving them and caring for them and assuming the best about them. And then when they, maybe maybe they do do the worst and we assume the best and then we feel like we're we're stabbed in the back. Even then he can can give us the ability to, to forgive those people in that situation. And to love them. And to continue to care for them regardless of all of the things that that we may have felt they have done in our lives. When you look at these things, they look impossible. They're not impossible for God. And it's in a relationship with him that we experience life change that cannot be experienced anywhere else. It's in relationship with him that we put him on display in such a way that the whole world will be transformed. Imagine, Imagine if all of us walked out of this place living this way. Can you imagine the beauty against this dark backdrop of the world that will be put on display of Jesus Christ living amongst his people? Do you know him? Have you entered a relationship with him? That's the beginning. It's the beginning of a lifetime, of an eternity of of work that he will do in us. He will change us forever and make us like his son. Let's pray. Father, thank you.